Hi, comrades, and welcome to episode number three of The End of Sport. Today, we have the great and frankly, quite unlikely pleasure of sitting down with University of Minnesota Regent Michael D. Shu, who agreed to sit down with us and very frankly, talk about the realities of college sports. Before we get to that, I'd just like to do the usual, which is to plug the pod on Twitter, on Instagram, at endofsportpod. You can email us at uh, theendofsport at gmail.com. And please rate and review the podcast as well, if you would be so kind. I urge the listeners to actually listen particularly close to the end um, to really get um, a sense of what Michael thought or thinks about college sport in the grand scheme of, of college sport. Michael D. Shu has been a regent at the University of Minnesota since 2015, representing Congressional District 6. He is the only regent we know of in the United States who has publicly spoken out against the system of compensation in college sport, including in a column he published on Deadspin, which we will link in the show notes. Michael, we really couldn't be more excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Before diving right in, because there's really so much we want to get to with you today, how are you and how are you, how is your family coping with this pandemic? Well, I, I'm doing well and so is my family. And um, actually, uh, I, uh, as you may know, I have a daughter who attends Duke normally, but she is attending Duke from my home. So yes. she's, uh, she's a junior and right. uh, she would rather be with her friends. And, um, but she did come home right after the Duke UNC game. And um, immediately was sick. So I, I don't, I don't know if she got coronavirus or not. <laughs> oh, wow. How, how is your, how is your daughter dealing with the online transition? If you don't mind me asking. Um, I, well, she's doing it, but she doesn't, she doesn't love it. She would rather not do it. And, um, but it, you know, it's working. I think it works. I've, I've sat in on some classes, um, you know, here and there because, uh, I wanted to see what it was like. So it was, uh, it was an experience. For all of us. That's right. Exactly. Um, well, because um, we anticipate we may have some, especially some international listeners who are not so familiar with the NCAA. Um, for those folks who are unfamiliar, could you tell us a little bit about the role of a regent more generally, and also the place of your specific institution in the landscape of U.S. college sport? Okay, well, regents are like trustees or board of governors or curators, or there's a whole bunch of names for us, but we're basically the board of directors. And I would say that my experience at Minnesota has been that, you know, they don't want us to know about a lot of stuff that's going on. Um, the NCAA has gener is generally a president's club, even though the memberships are, are um, you know, basically owned by the institutions. The institutions have the memberships in the NCAA. And they they would like the um, all the administration to be delegated to the presidents. So our president will attend the NCAA meetings, and usually our pres our last president didn't tell us anything that was going on. For example, we got very little uh, information. In fact, I would say that we had a little bit of conversation around some of the legal settlements that were made around the NCAA um, uh, a few years ago. 
but other than that, it was basically nothing. So unfortunately, um, th that's kind of what the NCAA wants, because if you look at some institutions, they have maybe 30 or more uh, trustees. Private schools typically have a lot of trustees because they're in, also involved in fundraising. But in, in our situation, we have 12 regents. And, you know, we typically, in our situation, we have uh, the University of Minnesota has five campuses, but we only have one Division I football team. And we're the only Division I football team in the entire state. So we have kind of this interesting role, and we also have quite a rich history of, um, of sports and specifically football. We have seven national championships, but we haven't had a national championship since 1960. So it kind of tells you that, you know, I, I look at it and I say, well, hey, look, you know, the Board of Governors or the Regents, we just have not had um, enough impact in terms of uh, what the university is actually doing in sports. And so typically, if you have a president who's not that interested in sports, then the president's not going to do a whole lot. Right. And if you have a president, we had a president, the last president we had, uh, we just switched presidents, but the last president we had uh, was Eric Kaler. He was really into sports, not a he didn't play sports himself other than maybe golf. But he was interested in athletics, and he became the chair of the Big Ten um, uh, and also became chair of the Board of Governors for the NCAA right before um, all this stuff happened with name, image, and likeness. So I hope that gives you kind of an overview of it. I just happen to be an outspoken regent because um, I have spoken out on these issues, and I, we can go in, into that a little bit more later. Um, and I do know of one other trustee, two other trustees um, who are in this entire country who are interested in this subject. One of them is um, Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, who signed the California bill into law. He is uh, he's an ex officio member of both uh, Cal, the Cal State system and the University of California system. And I believe he's a former college uh, baseball player. So I think he understands what's going on um, with name, image, and likeness. And the other uh, person uh, is a guy by the name of Jordan Acker, who is a relatively new regent at the University of Michigan. And he is, uh, um, he was vocal at, uh, he gave a, um, a passionate speech at one of their uh, Board of Regents meetings last year. So those are the only three. <laughs> in the entire country or the world or whatever wow. that I know of who have spoken publicly on this issue. Now, now, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think that such few regents or board of governors actually pay attention to, or, or are, are willing to get out there publicly um, and voice um, some disapproval over kind of what's happening? Well, I think what has happened is the regents have kind of been, culturally kind of pushed to the side you know even though um the regents technically are in in charge of the oversight of the institution which includes athletics regents and trustees have kind of been told that well you don't really we don't really talk about these things in public and you know for for public institutions like ours i should say that 
all of our deliberations have to be public. We have you know, public, we have to publicly notice meetings and the public is um, able to come to the meetings. And recently we've been doing re meetings online and they're live streamed on YouTube. So people can hear what we're talking about. And it's, you know, it's called like the open meeting law or the sunshine law, um, depending on where you are. And for ours, uh, you know, we, we just generally do not discuss athletics um, in terms of national policies or anything like that. We will discuss things like, are we going to build this building or build this new field for athletics and, and that kind of stuff. In fact, just um, this week on Tuesday, we approved a $1.5 million recovery suite. And, you know, what's a recovery suite, you might ask? Well, <laughs> recovery suite, yeah, you might have one at Duke, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but a recovery suite, you know, is like uh, an ice bath or ice chiller or whatever and uh, sleep pods and things like that. And uh, we just approved it. And a lot of people were upset that we were even talking about that because, you know, we're dealing with a pandemic right now. Um, but it, it was it was only one point five million dollars and it was 100 percent donor funded. Uh, so from my perspective, it's, well, if the donors are still wanting to give us the money and let's finish this project. And actually, it would, the approval this week was only the approval for the design of it, the schematic design, which has to come through the regents. And uh, the project was approved a while back before the pandemic struck. So, Okay, well, listen, you, you're already gesturing with that, with that mention of sort of the sleep pod piece. Um, and these kind of facilities, the tensions, right, that exist in the world of college sport at this point in terms of how much money has flowed in to this industry, this multi-billion dollar industry. And then, of course, critically, how much of that ends up in the hands of the student athletes, as they are called in the NCAA, or college or campus athletic workers, as I like to call them, um, <laughs> yeah. who don't see that in the form of wages, right? What they receive, right. um, we're told, is they receive scholarships, grants and aid. They receive room and board um, in some cases, not all, but if we're talking about football, that is aside from walk-ons, typically that's what football players or men's football players are getting. Um, so as a consequence of that, right, we've seen an emergent kind of athletes rights movement, and we've seen discussion about this question of what I certainly comfortably characterize as the exploitation of these campus athletic workers. All right. Those are, the, those are my words, not yours. Um, but you obviously are, very cognizant that this conversation is happening. Um, and so I, I mentioned at the, off the top that you'd written a piece for Deadspin where you kind of made your own proposal um, of what potentially could be done, right, to kind of ameliorate the situation and perhaps produce a more equitable kind of um, compensation, perhaps, if we want to put it in those terms, for these college athletes. So I just want to briefly quote you back to you uh, and then ask you a little bit about that. So in that Deadspin piece, you wrote, quote, there is a way that schools can both short circuit the gray market and teen teenage athletes that play revenue driving sports and fairly compensate athletes for their labor. It isn't even all that complicated. It also has the added benefit of deflating some old and phony NCAA pieties. So my question to you is, what is that proposal for fairly compensating athletes? And why do you think it addresses some of these issues of exploitation in NCAA sport I was gesturing to? Thank you for the question. Um, the piece that I wrote for Deadspin was actually written back in November of 2018. So it was actually before the lawsuit was decided by Judge Wilkin. And Judge Wilkin um, in the Ninth Circuit 
uh, is the same judge who decided the O'Bannon case several years before. And the O'Bannon case was actually filed in 2009. And, you know, we're now over 10 years from when that case was originally uh, filed. And I think it was decided somewhere in the neighborhood of 2016 and then appealed. And, you know, there were a number of things that happened um, with that particular case. But one of the things that I felt um, uh, needed to be addressed, and the reason I wrote the article is really because basically the FBI was wiretapping people. And um, when, when we get to that level, I, I thought, hey, maybe we should start fixing these, start thinking about fixing these problems. And so the, uh, the, problem, the problem at the time was that, um, I mean, one of the characters involved, uh, not characters, but one of the student-athletes, uh, and I generally don't use that term, student-athletes, because um, that is an invented term by the NCAA, but the uh, student was uh, Brian Bowen Jr., and he was uh, basically, uh, they, they, tr they traced uh, the fact that his father received $100,000 um, for him to attend a particular school. And the school was um, Louisville. And so I look at it and I said, hey, what's going on here? We, we've known, everybody's really kind of known that there have been, you, you know, you've heard, everybody's heard that uh, there's been paying of players and it's, it occurred before, um, you know, the recent, recent things that have happened. In fact, um, uh, there's a great story about Will Chamberlain, who played basketball for Kansas, but he was from Philadelphia. And so how did he end up in Kansas? And by the way, uh, Will Chamberlain drove a brand new uh, Oldsmobile uh, every year. Uh, where did he get the money for that? So, and we, we know, we know now that there are a lot of things that happened way back when, and people were getting things, cars, cash, whatever. And apparently the NCAA wanted to stop, stop dealing, uh, stop that. And, uh, they kind of looked the other way until the FBI gets involved and the FBI gets involved and starts looking at these things because there's, you know, there are crimes being committed. And they're getting wiretaps and they're listening to people's cell phones and cell phone conversations and uh, videotaping meetings and things like that. So my position was, hey, there's a simple way to fix this. And when I became a region, I just never, actually before I became a region, I never could understand this. And just so you know, I, so I have a cousin who's six foot seven and played basketball for Cal back in the mid eighties. And not that he and I ever had any discussions about this stuff, but I was always kind of aware of college athletics, even when I was in, in high school. And things have kind of gotten crazy since then. That was in the early 80s. And things have gotten crazy about that, uh, about, you know, this uh, payment of coaches and, and all that stuff. So my proposal was basically to equalize the total cost of attendance. So because of, because of the O'Bannon case, um, the NCAA decided to add in um, the stipend. And the stipend, you know, passed by, um, I, I forgot how many total votes there were, but only one school vote, voted against it. And I think it was, it was Boston College. And Boston College said, there's no way we can afford, we, can, we can't afford this. 
But then again, if you look, Boston College is paying a stipend now because everybody else is. And so they found a way, they found the money. But what my view was, was why do you, why do you just allow a student athlete to have um, the total cost of attendance at a school? And for a lot of people, they, they just figure, hey, look, we're giving this kid an education and that should be good enough. But the funny thing is, is the total cost of attendance varies greatly between schools. Um, and in our conference, for example, we just happen to have the number one school back in the 2017-2018 data that I was looking at, and that's Northwestern. So Northwestern had a quarterback named Clayton Thorson, and Clayton Thorson was an in-state resident of Illinois. And for most people who don't know uh, where Northwestern is, it's on the north side of Chicago in Illinois. And um, Clayton Thorson is from a western suburb of Chicago called Wheaton. Um, and he decided to go to Northwestern. And to go to Northwestern during his last year there, I think, or second to last year there, was around $70,000, 70000 and change. And the University of Illinois, uh, also in his home state, but only had a, um, only had a tuition of about $30,000. Okay, so why shouldn't Clayton Thorson go be able to go to Illinois and receive an extra $42,800? So that's kind of the crux of my position at the time. And then none of this really matters anymore because that lawsuit uh, was, uh, uh, was adjudicated by Judge Wilkin, and she basically said um, you can have unlimited educational expenses or expenses tied tethered to education. Okay. And so what does that mean? That created a whole nother um, concept of, well, maybe you could give, you could offer a student uh, one degree and then either another uh, undergraduate degree or multiple undergraduate degrees or, you know, a law degree or a medical school degree, you know, you, you can just, the sky's the limit in terms of what you can offer a kid based on, the way that she um, viewed the, the law at the time. And I think recently they just filed um, the appeal uh, for that case. And so that's not done yet. But the fact is, you know, I think that the, I, I like my idea because it was basically using what the NCAA was using already, which was total cost of attendance. And all I'm saying is that you should be able to equalize that cost. And the easiest way to do it is in cash. Okay. Now, aside from dealing with taxes and all that kind of stuff, it's just simplest to think about it in terms of cash. With the way the NCAA has, has been moving recently, um, in particular, like today, their news kind of broke that like the NCAA is moving toward allowing um, athletes to be sort of to get paid sponsorship. Does your argument still hold, or or have you changed it today, or where where are you, uh, where are you at today? Uh, well, I'm in the same place. My Deadspin article did actually talk about uh, some other other concepts, but in general, I'm totally supportive of name, image, and likeness. I think that, well, actually, I think students are actually employees. They should be considered employees. And as I was, as I alluded to, the term student athlete was actually coined back in the 50s to stop that, 
they did not want to pay workman's comp because they knew sports are dangerous. Okay, so they did not want to be on the hook for medical expenses and disability and all that kind of stuff. They knew this in the 50s. Okay, and that's why they came up with student athletes. Thank you, Walter Byers. Yes, well, Walter Byers had even admitted that in his book. You know, he wrote a he wrote a um, mea culpa book called Unsportsmanlike Conduct, and you know, before he died, he was able to kind of at least come clean and say, "Hey, here's what really happened," and I'm I'm opposed to it today. So, thank you, Walter Byers. Absolutely, and I, I so I think you know. Derek and I both agree with you that NIL is, uh, again, that's for, for folks who are not familiar, name, image, and likeness. And what we're talking about is that historically, because of, again, because of these amateurism rules, the NCA has prohibited um, students from receiving any kind of compensation, not just from the universities, but from anyone for advertising, for using their own image, et cetera. Um, and so that, that's, those are these impermissible benefits that lead to uh, suspensions and penalties for the universities, et cetera. So it seems that they're moving, as the, the news that Derek uh, referenced today, the news that's coming out is that they are moving in the same direction as the California Fair Pay to Play law. They're actually going, it sounds, beyond that law a little bit in that they're telling us that um, they're actually going to allow the students even to get sponsorships that might contradict the sponsorships of their own institutions i.e. if they're sponsored by Nike, perhaps they could get an Under Armour contract, et cetera. Uh, so it seems like a big step. Um, and it also seems like that big step uh, has been precipitated by moves in the NBA uh, by trying to lure more uh, aspiring athletes, young up-and-coming top recruits to their G League, that's their developmental league, prior to being able to be eligible to be drafted in the NBA draft, but paying those individuals, in fact, paying the most highly coveted individuals upwards of $500,000 a year, as well as offering them um, potential scholarship subsidies, educational subsidies moving forward, et cetera, right? So that's a, clearly a direct challenge to the NCA's model. And it does seem like the NCA maybe is answering a little bit with this movement on NIL that we're seeing today. But um, for me, I have consistently kind of pushed back a little bit on NIL as an endpoint as well, because I think that for me, NIL solves a lot of problems for the NCAA, and it solves a lot of problems for the NCAA right now in this pandemic moment, right, where we're seeing a, uh, a crisis in higher education in general, a fiscal crisis across higher education. We're seeing fears around the cancellation of football seasons, um, right? We're seeing potentially lost revenue. And the beauty of NIL is that the money does not come from the institutions, right? So there's a way of then luring back these top athletes but having someone else foot the bill for that, which I think is a huge win for the NCAA, and they get some good PR out of it. Um, so for me, and this is where I'm trying to kind of follow up with you, Michael, a couple of things. Like one is, I, I loved what you said about um, the employment conditions, right? Like considering these folks to be workers, because I think that's a huge part of it. I would love to see union rights moving forward um, and protections for occupational health and safety, insurance for these individuals. Like in the United States, where we don't have uh, public health care, these athletes are on the hook for the cost of the injuries that they accrue in their time in college sports after they leave the institution, not during their time at the institution, but after their time at the institution. And that seems to be completely unjust to me. And then here's the other one. And this is what I would really love to hear you respond to, because your plan that you had proposed previously has a lot to do right with tuition and education, the cost of education. I'm curious what you think about the fact that it seems to me it is very difficult for these athletes to get the education that they are promised. 
right? Because of the fact that the obligations they have to their teams take up so much of their time, that it's really not possible to be present in the classroom the way they might want to be. It's not possible to take advantage of summer programs. Because of practice times, it's not possible to take even the courses they want to take. They're being steered into particular courses by their coaches. What do you make of that educational piece? Well, um, I think Jim Harbaugh said it best when he was the coach at Stanford. Okay. He actually said at Stanford, you know, we actually let the students study what they want to study. And he, he made a lot of enemies at Michigan. This is before he, they, Michigan hired him back. But if you recall, he, he actually talked about his own um, story. And I believe he was a his, uh, history major. And so all, you know, history majors, typically, they're not taking tests, they're writing papers, right? <laughs> so um, a lot of athletes get pushed into those paper classes, as we saw at UNC, although, you know, most, most schools make the students actually write their own papers, whereas at, at UNC, it was un, unclear who was writing their papers and what kind of grades they were getting for those. But Jim Harbaugh made it clear that at Stanford, you could take what you wanted to take. At Michigan, uh, not so much. And now that he's the coach at Michigan, I guess they kind of forgot that he said that. But now that he's the coach at Michigan, I, I'm not sure how it works works there. But I think in general, that's where education comes into play. I bet he, he said that. Yeah, he might have. He might have. <laughs> or he's, uh, he's uh, pretending he doesn't remember. Um, but I think for, for uh, most students, the question is, you know, are they really there to study at all? Um, or are they there to just be able to show off their athletic prowess and, and get to the uh, NBA? And as you know, with the one and done situation in basketball, you know, I think that's typically what they're doing. If you remember a guy named uh, what Ben Simmons, is he still at, uh, he played at LSU and then he, um, I think went to the Philadelphia 76ers. Well, there's a, a documentary based on, I can't remember what it's called, um, but you, you guys probably know. Um, but if you watch the documentary, the guy was only at LSU for one semester because uh, as soon as basketball season was over, he left. <laughs> and he said, I'm not, here for, I'm not here to go to school. I'm here to get into the NBA. So those kids, uh, you know, the problem is at least – if they stay four years and the coach and uh, university support them, they will at least have a degree when they get out, you know, whether it's the best degree they could have gotten or not, or whether they actually learned anything or not. We, we don't know. Um, but I think we have to be honest, uh, you know, and the NCAA even put out a commercial to the extent that they said we have 400,000 athletes, only 2% will go pro in a sport, in their sport. Most of them will earn money doing something else that they got their degree for. Well, you know, I don't know how many surveys have been done to actually back all that up, but we do know for a fact that only a certain number of uh, those kids are going to go and play in the pros, right? There are some that don't even have a pro, uh, a pro equivalent other than maybe an Olympic sport. You can, you can go to the Olympics and you know, travel, do the skiing circuit or whatever. Um, but they're, you know, other than uh, the Olympics, some of them don't have anything. Now, wrestling is kind of interesting now because of MMA and all that kind of stuff. You know, 
wrestlers actually have been successful in MMA. You know, we have one at Minnesota, Brock Lesnar, uh, who's uh, was uh, involved in the early days of MMA, and you know, there are a lot of people trying to follow in his footsteps. So, you know, it's it's an interesting question. I think I like the idea that we have. So at Minnesota, we have this, you know, this ability for students who um, go, like, let's say they go to the NBA draft without getting their degree, they can come back, and we will honor their scholarship and try to get them the credits, help them get the credits they need to actually get a degree. But I think, you know, kids that and we have a, we have a guy who went to the G league uh, last year. So he's playing in the G league this year and he did not finish his degree. And I talked to his father and his father said he wants to take courses online, which, Hey, you know, everything's online now. He can take, he can do it if he wants. Um, and he, he's not playing right now because there's no NBA season. So he could actually be doing his degree. Um, and he's in L.A. right now um, uh, playing for the G League or with the G League team. I assume he's in L.A., but he could be doing uh, some course coursework there. And I think that's all great. But in general, I think education uh, is, is going to be very important for any kid. And, you know, lots of kids want to go to college and they just can't do it because it's expensive and they don't know how to, they don't know how to even apply. And if their parents didn't, um, didn't go to college, they likely don't know how to apply and how to work the system either. And it's not an easy system. It's a very difficult system. But I think, uh, in terms of education, we should be doing more for the students because we we all know that at the end of the day it's the degrees that are really going to matter for most of these kids i th i i'm really interested in this educational piece because um so listeners of the podcast would would maybe know that i taught at the university of south carolina for a few years um and i i noticed that like all of the student athletes in my classrooms were like heavily overloaded with their like day-to-day -day athletic duties like it had nothing to do with work had nothing to do with like other issues but their day-to-day -day, um athletic labor that they had to give to to the institution to get their um scholarship was like really overwhelming them so like i i'm just really curious to get your thoughts on whether or not there's there's a, even a possibility of true education with students um and uh, with athletic laborers when they're the demands on them are so so high um so just in general just really curious to get your thoughts on like whether or not that educational piece is even possible under the current um, um system where where students have to really give their all to their athletics in order to get their scholarship well i think the difference it, it it depends on the, the student, it depends on the sport, it depends on the coach, it depends on a lot of things. We are giving students more support than, than ever right now. Um, there are a lot of students who, you know, you, you uh, played and if you got injured or something, you're on your own, right? <laughs> you maybe even lost your scholarship back in the old days, right? So, uh, I think we're doing better than we ever have in, in that department. But I would say, are students really able to study what they want to study? Are they being told like Jim Harbaugh was that he was going to study history? 
I, I think there's less of that these days. And I think there is, there are a lot of majors that, you know, and part of it is that, uh, depending on who you're hanging out with, right? Your buddies on the team or your buddies who are other students in other sports, you want to be in the same programs. So every school has programs which are, that are heavy in athletics, right? They, they have a lot of athletes in those classes, in those majors, because they all kind of, you know, can kind of see that, well, it's easier for the tutors because the tutors have all these kids that are doing the same work, basically. The kids can help each other. You know, there's there's more focus on teamwork these days in term in in academics. So, um, the students uh, on um, you know that practice teamwork on the field or on the court, you know, are are able to understand that better and um, help each other. So I think there's a lot of helping each other. You know, stay eligible and all that kind of stuff. Minnesota, you know, our, our we actually got into a bowl game a few years ago because we had. Um, a high APR ranking, and you know we only won five games, but we were we got we got into a bowl game because we we were the highest uh, APR um, ranking that year. So we we do a pretty good job. I don't know at other schools what what really goes on. So another aspect of this whole equation that um, that really gets to me is, and this is something that's right up Derek's alley because Derek is also a, a criminologist and studies uh, terrorism and surveillance broadly. And this is kind of a surveillance issue um, is something that I've observed. And I really didn't realize it before because, you know, I did my graduate work and my undergraduate work, I, all my um, education in Canada, not here, even though I followed U.S. sports closely, college sports closely. But being on one of these campuses, it is astounding the level of surveillance these student athletes are subjected to. Uh, players are monitored in terms of class attendance. In my mind, I, I will frame it in these terms. They are subjected to corporal punishment uh, if they're late or absent. Uh, and what I mean is that they're forced to run excessively, right? So they're basically, in my estimation, I call that corporal punishment because they're being subjected to overtraining, in my estimation, which is actually really dangerous. Um, and it's not something that their body should be, um, should be asked to, um, to endure. Yet they are, uh, and it's, it means that often the faculty are essentially invited to be complicit in this process because they're asked to report on players, right? To tell um, the teams if the players are not attending class the way they're supposed to be, et cetera. And then there's this kind of harm piece that comes along with that. And I think perhaps there's also a question of faculty themselves being surveilled. Derek, didn't you have an experience with that? I remember like quite fondly at South Carolina, I was exiting a, an intro to sociology course and I was approached by a, a coach of a, fo uh, of a team. Um, there was a little bit of a Freudian slip there, but uh, of a, of an athletic team for South Carolina and asked about the grades I was giving to the, the collegiate athletes in the class and whether or not those were fair and whether or not, I should be doing that. Me as a Canadian, like not like always a sports fan, always interested, but down in the Southern States, not really knowing my place. I was completely taken aback by that. And like, it, it sent my whole world for like a, a like a, a tailspin for a, a couple of days. I'm like, Oh wow, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my assistantship, all this stuff. Um, so yeah, the, these questions of surveillance, I think, extend beyond just like the, the athletes themselves and into faculty to some extent. 
Yeah. And so like, Michael, when we spoke previously, uh, you actually told me, and this, this absolutely shocked me. You said, oh yeah, Coach K knows who you are. Um, <laughs> and that gave me pause because the only experience I had with him was that one day uh, my, my daughter was playing with Thomas the Tank Engine trains with me on the floor of the Duke Basketball Hall of Fame when Coach K happened to saunter by heading to an elevator. And he gave me what I can only describe as a rather withering look. Um, no doubt for desecrating that hallowed space with our profane activities. Uh, but anyway, what I'm curious about is, what's your view of the power of athletics on our campuses and the kind of place of surveillance within that structure? We, we live in a surveillance culture right now, especially since 9-11. And, you know, with this pandemic, you know, uh, we have uh, the cell phone companies, Apple and, and Google, uh, rolling out applications to use, anon use anonymous uh, location data to determine whether or not you came in within came within six feet of someone who tested positive for coronavirus, and the this same technology has been used in China and Singapore and places like that. And you know, I'm I'm wondering whether or not you know Americans are going to buy into this, but. You can imagine that uh, there are uh, people who, and I know people who have thought about this, thought about being able to check and see if someone's cell phone, presumably the person's with them, right? But check and see if the cell phone made it to class. And um, so there's all sorts of things. Like we have a new football coach, um, PJ Fleck. He's, he's, uh, he's brought in a whole bunch of different culture changes to the university. And he says, you have to sit within the first two rows and you have to have a college shirt on. Um, so I don't know about you guys, but did, where did the athletes sit? Did they sit in the front row or the back row? Well, exclusively um, in the back row. I think part of that is because of the athletic labor in terms of like, I think these, a uh, lot of these students are like pushed to the brink and like need to be almost like anonymous in their class. So they sleep. Yes. Um, and rightfully so, because um, sometimes I'll, I'll see them on television at like midnight the night before and they have to be at my 8 a.m. class. Sure. So completely understandable. Like I get more sleep than, than most of the, um, the, the athletes. Yeah, sleep is sleep is actually underrated. I'm actually working with uh, one of our neurologists on, um, you know, trying to make sure athletes get enough sleep. And uh, you know, he's got a interesting program. Um, not only sleep, but you know, meditation, and all that kind of stuff. But that's that's kind of a side issue. But I think it's I I, I do realize it's important for all young people, all people actually. <laughs> so this really brings me to. The next place I want to go, because what you're, we're getting at is the physical harm dimension of these sports. And we've been kind of honing in on honing in on football, basketball, but like I want to talk football now. And I want to really kind of push us to the logical extension of these exploitation arguments for me, because what I want to know is what do you make of the fact that we are talking about institutions of higher education, institutions devoted to nurturing the minds and hopefully bodies along with it of young people, right? And yet we are trotting those young individuals out onto a field where their bodies are inflicted, uh, where we inflict upon their bodies, you know, incredible harm, harm that we now understand medically will affect them um, 
throughout the rest of their lives will have a profound transformative impact on their quality of life moving forward. I'm thinking about, of course, traumatic brain injury, CTE, et cetera. My question for you is, isn't football at odds with the mission of higher education fundamentally? Well, I, I would tend to agree with you. In fact, if you read my bio, um, I played football in high school until ninth grade and I had a neck injury. And I did read that. I decided Indeed, to focus I on, I did, yeah, so I decided to focus on swimming instead. Um, I'm actually glad that I didn't play any more football now, knowing what football does to your brain. And my son played football only for a short time when he was in like sixth or seventh grade and then decided it wasn't for him. Um, but he's a, he's a Marine now. So, um, you know, in the military, they have different, um, you know, issues with uh, brain health and, um, and they actually have sponsor a lot of um, uh, neurological research in, in that space. But I, I would say that it's interesting because uh, the NCAA was actually created back in the early 1900s to basically help uh, the sport of football um, in, in terms of, you know, people were dying every week, weekend, playing football. I don't know if they were dying in practices, but they were definitely dying every weekend. If you can imagine that today where people are dying playing football, right? But the NCAA was originally created to to um, basically fix that problem. And otherwise, football was probably going to be outlawed. And it was, um, uh, I forgot what president it was. I think it was Roosevelt, uh, one of the Roosevelts, first Roosevelt, actually, uh, who basically said, um, look, if you guys can't fix this, then we're going to shut it down. And they were able to fix it. You know, I think they, you know, whatever they did, they changed some rules. I think they started, maybe the forward pass was created back then to, to alleviate the crunching on the line and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, again, when I played football, you know, I was told, and I was a running back, I was told, put your head down and, and run, right? So basically use your head to, to force your way through, for, force your way through the line. And that's not what they teach anymore. In fact, you know, if you tackle with your, if you lead with your helmet when you're tackling, you're, you know, you're, you're disqualified. So, uh, or you, you get a targeting penalty and then you have to leave the game. So I, I think what they're doing now is they're trying to make the sport, you know, uh, healthier, uh, but I don't think they can do it. And I actually tried on a football helmet the other, uh, the other year. And that thing was so heavy. I couldn't believe it. I would have to do neck exercises in order just to wear the helmet, you know? And, uh, so I I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that uh, can be done. We, uh, at Minnesota, actually, maybe 10 years ago, we had done, um, kind of this pilot project where we actually had sensors in the helmets and we could tell, you know, how much G-force your head was, you know, taking and, and all that stuff. And, and uh, you know, we don't do it anymore for some reason. It was probably expensive. Maybe it didn't work well. But, you know, it's that type of stuff. It's that kind of data that I think people need to look at. Now, in terms of CTE, the problem with CTE is apparently you can't detect CTE until after someone dies. And, you know, I'm not a neurologist and I 
every neurologist I get to talk to, I say, well, why is that? Why can't you, why can't we determine what, um, you know, what person has CTE before they die? You know, they have all these symptoms, right? A lot of people look back and they say, well, I'm not surprised that Joe had CTE because Joe couldn't remember anything and he was shaking all the time, you know, whatever the symptoms are. Um, so I think, yeah, football, um, and football is in, in trouble. I think the NFL understands that. Um, and the NFL, you know, is basically where everyone looks, um, in terms of, uh, looks to, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, what kind of doctors are actually looking at this, what kind of research is being done. And I'm involved, uh, not involved, but I, I talk to people about con- concussions all the time, whether it's our former players, alums, or, you know, people around the country um, uh, that uh, are involved in this kind of stuff. And I know from talking to an old friend of mine who I just reconnected with uh, just earlier this year, um, his daughter uh, played hockey at, uh, at an Ivy League school and ended up getting a concussion. She was basically un- unconscious on the ice. And um, then she regained consciousness and she was still, the coaches were putting her back in the game. And, um, you know, then they later found out that it was a concussion and all that stuff. And his wife had, to, they're from Chicago. And so his wife basically had to jump on an airplane and fly to the East Coast right away and try to help, try to help uh, their daughter. So, I look at these things and it's not just football, it's every sport. And, you know, my, my daughter played soccer. I told her, you are not allowed to head the ball unless you're going to score a goal. (laughs) You know, I don't even know why I made that exception. It was kind of a compromise. Right. But, but you, you, you look at these, you look at these uh, girls who are taking these, you know, the ball, I don't know how much the ball weighs, but you know, some of those balls are pretty hard. Right. And they're, they're taking it right in the front of the head or, you know, maybe sometimes if they miss the other parts of the head and it's not good for them. And I don't, I don't understand why um, the sport of soccer hasn't done more. And I think they are doing more. They're starting to figure it out. Um, but especially letting kids who have, you know, smaller, uh, thinner skulls and they're not fully grown yet. And, I mean, so there's a lot of issues in every sport. And I, th- I hope that people have the right kind of uh, moral judgment, you know, when they, when they look at the data. And I think there's enough data right now to, to basically say, Hey, we can't, we can't be playing football the way it is, but you know, what are you going to do? You're going to go back to flag football. You know, there's so much money tied up in football and football. Basically we didn't talk about finances, but football basically pays in basketball and depending on the school basically pay for, um, all the other sports, you know, the, uh, in addition to, you know, I mean, at our school, it's, it's basically 5% of the budget is, is, uh, general fund money. Most people don't realize that they think it's all, uh, paid for by, uh, uh, sports revenues, tickets and NCAA, um, disbursements and that kind of stuff. But we still sponsor, we still subsidize about 5% works out to be about $6.9 million a year. Other schools, you know, you have more activity fees, you know, where basically the sports are paid for through the activity fees charged to every student. Um, so there's, there's a lot of money tied up in football usually. And there are a lot of schools that actually make, make uh, most of their money in football 
or basketball. Like for Duke, you know, it's probably basketball, not football, right? Although Duke's got a pretty good football team too. So I, I think uh, from from a from a financial perspective, it's going to be very hard to say you can't play football, right? And that's where I think boards of trustees have been absent. You know, not only in name, image, and likeness, and the other general rights and health of uh, students um, who are in athletics, but I think that you know boards of trustees need to be involved when they're when safety becomes an issue. And I think we're kind of at that point now. I mean, Maryland, um, you know, they had the McNair problem where McNair died during a hot practice and they found out that the athletes weren't getting enough water and they weren't, they were given the water, but they weren't made to drink the water or they weren't, they were told to drink the water, but they didn't necessarily drink the water. And, you know, so there's all these issues related to the liabilities of sports, you know, and that's a practice. You know, we're not even talking about a game. So. Yeah, like th this to me is like the fundamental paradox of college athletics, particularly when you think of revenue generating sport, when you think of like, I, I'll, I'll like single out football here because like football, as you noted, seems to be an almost unsustainable game. Like, why are we still doing this? And you answered it perfectly, like because money. Right, it it, it it is a financial. Um, uh, it would be financially devastating to cancel football programs in the NCAA, uh, and to like just stop playing the game. But this, to me, highlights this very interesting point between like what is the mission of our universities? Is it to educate, or is it to like be like financially? um like self-sufficient and financially like useful um and and financially um relevant and all of these things and i think that what you're what you're saying in terms of the or, or what we're talking about in terms of the um the the violence of the sport seems to be forgotten is is kind of the the end point that i see like we we tend to stop thinking about the harm that we're doing to people so like one of my questions in general is like how can we approach or how can we accept that football will happen that we will be playing this game but also that like we are trying to do we're trying to be sustainable like basically where do we go from here like how do we move forward in the future knowing that people are like at there, there, there's a high risk of violence. There's a high risk of um, CTE um, as as people grow old. How do we continue to play this game while keeping this in our universities? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think the days are numbered for both university football and um, or college football and uh, pro football. I think uh, you know right now there are um, organizations collecting people's brains. Uh, so, you know, brains of people associated with football who played football at whatever age, um, you know, whether they were a pro or they just played in college or they just played in high school. I mean, the, the real interesting thing is, um, I think within the last year or two, they, they, uh, they got a brain of a high school, of a kid who played high school football, and they determined that the kid had CTE. 
nobody had thought that CTE would be prevalent in someone that young. But now they, now they know that. Now that's just one data point, right? But as they keep on collecting brains, and I know that there are a number of people involved in that. I've, I've got some alums at the University of Minnesota who are in, in, interested and involved in that. In fact, one of our alums filed the first con concussion lawsuit. He's a Super Bowl champion from the Kansas City Chiefs back, back in like 1960 or whatever, 1970, 1970. He played here in the 60s and then played in the pros and then went to law school. He filed the first uh, concussion lawsuit against the NFL. And he lost that. I mean, they, they lost that. The NFL kind of won that lawsuit. But, you know, um, there's, there, there are people around who are really interested in kind of doing the right thing and um, trying to make sure, you know, football, if it's possible to play safely. Because every time you get this, these new data points, like this kid in high school that, you know, I, w I played football in high school, right? So uh, I just think, well, if I would have played a few more years, I have no idea what would have happened to my brain. I may not have been able to go to college and get the degree that I got and, you know, get the job, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't have any um, lasting, I think, football issues that I'm aware of. I mean, I can, I can say that, you know, if I crack my neck that maybe it's a football injury. But um, so I think we, we're, we're kind of going down this road where, you know, I don't know if it's 10 years or 20 years, but I really think that football is going to have a hard time being played the way it is today. And that's if we get through the pandemic. Exactly. I hope you're right about what you're saying about the future of college of football and college football. Um, but yeah, are, we have this, I mean, so there's getting through the pandemic in terms of us surviving as a society, um, as, as individuals in that society. And there's also like the, the implications, right, for higher education and for college sport, which I, I was gesturing to a little bit earlier. Where do you see us going? We've already seen some programs cut. Uh, I think we had a soccer, the men's soccer team was cut at the University of Cincinnati. Um, what do you think the future of college sports is? Well, seeing as though everyone, everyone's focused on whether or not we're going to have a football season for fall of 2020. Everybody's interested in whether or not we're going to even have students on campus for fall of 2020, right? I, I listen to, if I listen to the experts, which I do, we're probably not going to have a football season um, with or without fans. And if look at it this way, are you going to tell a football team now they're, they're not employees, right? So you can't tell them they have to play. So what are we going to do? Are we going to say you can play if you want to? And you know, obviously most kids are going to want to, right? But they're going to have to pass tests. You know, football, you're in someone else's face. I mean, there's, you're, you're exchanging bodily fluids, right? And I'm, not, I'm just not sure that, you know, are we going to put masks on all the players? You know, are you going to wear a N95 mask under your football helmet to play football? I don't know. Um, are you I gonna... don't mean to laugh, but like even the image is a little bit kind of like funny. Well, sure. So I, I always tell people, I mean, for the last month or so, I've been telling people, if there's one sport that can figure this out, it might be baseball, Major League Baseball, right? We're in the Major League Baseball. We should be in the Major League Baseball season right now. Most players are not near each other. Okay, you have a base runner, you have a pitcher, 
uh, or you have a catcher and an umpire and the batter, you know, standing within close proximity to each other, right? Let's say you can figure that out. Okay, you put PPE on the umpire and the catcher, right? So they're wearing suits, you know, like uh, like you'd see in a hospital with respirator masks on and, and that kind of stuff. And then you have a batter who has an N95 mask on. And, you know, so baseball, maybe you could figure out a way to do it, but they haven't done it yet, right? You know, obviously we're still in this um, stay-at-home kind of um, stay uh, with stay-at-home orders uh, by most of the states, but baseball hasn't figured it out yet. So football, um, you know, you gotta. I think they, I think they said that maybe you needed at least four to six weeks of practice before you play in a game. So if you work backwards from like a mid-August game, you're basically into Fourth of July weekend. Right where you have to be able to report to a training camp and uh, and and start working out with your with your teammates, right? So that's not that that's not that far away. And if we're told that uh, you have you have probably eighteen months minimum before we get, before we see a vaccine, and that's a that's a vaccine that you know would be would shatter the world record. The world record for uh, producing a vaccine, for developing a vaccine is four years. And that was the mumps vaccine back in the 60s. Okay, so the, the, next, uh, the next closest one is maybe the Ebola vaccine, which, you know, took six years to develop, right? So here we are, we're saying, oh, maybe we'll be, maybe we'll be playing, maybe we'll be going to school and playing football in the fall. Well, that's only a few months away, right, before you really have to put that into motion. And then spring sports, basketball is probably not going to be played again next year. I mean, I'm sorry to say it, but you know, the NCAA is going to have some serious problems. They didn't buy enough insurance for this year. We know that, right? So they're going to have some problems uh, figuring out what to do with basketball if it gets canceled two years in a row. So now we're looking at whether or not we're playing football in 2021. Right. So 2021 is so far away. People can't even think that far. And now now we're going to have all the same issues we had this year and then some. Right. We're going to have all the athletes that, you know, we're supposed to play football this year as freshmen. You know, what do you do with that? They're all redshirted. Right. <laughs> they all get an extra year of eligibility. So um, I, I'm I'm struggling to see how I mean, obviously, we have all these people and their hearts are in the right place. They want to make sure that uh, we, we go on, we can go back to normal. I just think a lot of people are being a little aggressive on, uh, uh, on the uh, timeline for these things. And, you know, it, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to seem um, overly pessimistic, but I'm just listening to what the experts are saying. Okay. And, um, you know, I have uh, friends in the UK who are, who, you know, the news today in the UK or yesterday, was uh, about these two vaccines that are promising vaccines that were developed at, developed at Cambridge and Oxford, right? And when I first heard about it, I said, well, wait a second, how come no one in the rest of the world is talking about that? How come, how come the experts that I'm talking to aren't talking about what's going on in the UK? Well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe they just haven't heard yet or whatever, but I still think it would be a world record to have a vaccine developed within a year. And um, they're but they're trying, and God bless them, they're trying. But um, I just don't think it's going to be enough. And then you have to worry about manufacturing them. 
And, you know, if you look at the United States, you know, vaccines are made in eggs, right? <laughs> chicken eggs, right? traditionally made in ch chicken eggs. And so you're talking about 300 million, 330 million chicken eggs. And then, and then that's for one dose. What if you need two doses, right? Like I just got the Shingrex vaccine for shingles. I had to get two different shots, you know, spaced apart by like six or eight weeks. And so now you're talking about, well, wait a second, what if we have to do that? What if we have to get two shots? And what do we have to wait? What if we have to wait another, you know, six to eight weeks between shots? You know, that adds, you know, potentially, you know, two to three months. So anyway, I, I don't want to seem overly pessimistic, but I really think that if you ask me today, which you did, um, and what day is today? Like April 21st or something like that? 23rd, April 23rd. It's it's still early. April twenty third, yeah. Oh well, I, whatever day this is going to be <laughs> played, but it's recorded <laughs> on the twenty third, no, no, right? It, so. it, it, it makes sense. The contextual, yep, yep. Yeah. So so we're I think we're we're still at the be beginning of this thing. I think you're spot on in terms of your your pessimism too, because like we're we're talking about opening up the country or the countries I'm, I'm personally right now. And can't. actually 18 to 24 months is optimistic. If you talk to experts, right? The experts. Yeah. Oh, I, 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 I think so. Yeah. I, I, I think like there's nothing, there's nothing that indicates that like it can come quicker than that for a variety of reasons. Yeah. There, there's probably no vaccine until at least middle of 2021 at the very, very earliest. And to me, I can't see sport happening like until that period. I can't see people going into into stadiums until there is a vaccine. Yeah, at least there'll, you'll be different people going in. Like, for example, you know, everyone thinks that young people aren't going to get can't get this or aren't going to get it. And you know, if that's the case, if that proves out, then maybe young people will be able to go into, you know, college football stadiums. But the old people, you know, a lot of the fans are older, um, older than college kids, right? Yeah. Like 80, 80 or 90 percent of the fans yeah. are older than college kids in in, uh, yeah. in in football games. So it's it's hard to see how that's going to work. And then, you know, if I talk to the people who are interested in concussion research and, and that type of stuff. Well, let's keep in mind, uh, safety is an issue. How can safety, how can you ignore safety issues like uh, in, in a pandemic, uh, coronavirus and respiratory issues and all that? So how can you allow athletes to not socially distance? How can you call them back to campus and tell them that we're going to play in these games? You know, I think there's some huge liabilities that, have, that nobody's really thought about yet. And, um, you know, football is just one sport, right? They're all these other sports, every sport. So we have 720 uh, student, um, students who are in athletics, right? 720 of them. And every one of them wants to play tomorrow or do their sport tomorrow. Swimming is another one that maybe is safe, right? If you chlorinate, put enough chlorine in the pool, um, and people are staying away from each other and you can have relays where, you know, the whole team isn't standing behind the blocks. You know, the next swimmer walks up to the blocks and you know, everyone else is six feet away and all that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, swimming and diving, it, it's a possibility that you could do that. But other than that, I don't, 
I don't really see maybe cross. Well, no, cross country are running with each other, right next to each other. So track, track, and the the evidence suggests that you need to be like ten to fifteen meters apart if you're running. Right? Yeah, because well, because if your you droplets if, go that you, far when you're running, right? You don't want to have people behind you, right? <laughs> So yeah, so I, I don't think you, I don't think those. So we could go through every sport, but I think swimming is really the most likely one where, where you could actually maybe do it without without uh, having a vaccine. Um, so just to follow just to follow up on the question on concussions. So I, I'm thinking when I talk to people who do concussion uh, or doing this research on concussions, I mean they really have a little bit of time here where they can actually make an impact. Because if football doesn't get started again, and they come out with some groundbreaking research, then I think football might be done. Okay, so it, it's different. You know, it's different if football's still kind of doing its normal thing. You know, even between seasons and stuff. And if you come up with research, research. but if right now football is challenged, even restarting, um, um, you know, next fall or the fall after. You know, there's some serious opportunity for the people who um, are doing this kind of research to actually accelerate what they're doing. Now, keep in mind, we're still in a pandemic, right? So I don't know how much concussion research is actually you know, happening. But I also want to point out that if you look at the news media, there are people that say that coronavirus can damage your brain. So you can have neurological problems after that. So I really don't think we want to have we want to put our students in in danger of that because you know if if they're getting brain damage from coronavirus that's more serious than a little you know lung damage you know even though you need to breathe right but you also need a brain to function and you need a brain to learn and you know so I always tell people well, I only have one brain <laughs> you know where you know some other organs we have multiple so. <laughs> But I only have one brain, so I th I really think that it's we're we're in some interesting times. Um, the this pandemic, I always tell people, um, it, it only took a pandemic, right? Whether we're talking about freezing tuition or <laughs> you know doing some other things in higher ed, it only took a pandemic. Going online, you know, I I was told for years, oh, the faculty they don't want to do it and. It's so expensive. I had our president tell me that, you know, three months ago. Oh, online, it's so expensive. I've, I've done online at multiple schools that I've been at, and it's so expensive. And I, you know, obviously, it's so expensive that um, it's not costing us a lot of money to do it. And we're using Zoom. Most of our classes are using Zoom, which is, you know, we bought a subscription to Zoom, and everybody's using it, right? So it's not like the university is kicking out a lot. We're not buying the servers. We're not. We're not producing um, content the way that you know they originally did when they started online stuff, so that it was expensive. And anyway, it, it, it only took a pandemic to get this stuff going. So who knows what the pandemic is going to do to sports? Is there anything else like you've just like burning to get out there? There's one thing that we didn't talk about. Uh, well, there's two kind of two things that um, we didn't talk about that maybe would be interesting for you guys. So when I was in um, high school, I, w I went to high school. I grew up born. I was born and raised in Ames, Iowa, which is the home of Iowa State University. And my father was a professor. 
And there was a basketball coach there by the name of Johnny Orr. And um, Iowa State hired him in the early 80s, I think it was 1981, from the University of Michigan. And the reason they hired him, because they were paying about 50% more than the University of Michigan at that time. And so Johnny Orr took the job at Iowa State and became the highest paid basketball coach in the country. Guess how much he was being paid at Iowa State? No idea. $45,000. Of course. That was the highest paid coach in the entire country in 1981. Wow. Okay. So it's, it's, it's very kind of interesting how, how much uh, coaching coach. And also do a Google search highest, highest paid public employee in the United States. Yes. Also do that one as well. Like today. I think that's how out of control sports have gone gotten since I was in high school. Okay. In the early 1980s. And I would say that, you know, I don't know the genie's out of the bottle. I don't know if we'll, we'll ever get back to that, right? Because you know, basically, I talk to some of my friends who are you know on the school board, local school boards here, you know, and they're they're not concerned about whether or not uh, football season happens because you know there's no revenue in high school football. I mean, there's some, but there's not much. And the coaches, guess how much the coaches get paid in high school? First of all, they're usually teachers, right? In the old days, they were they were teachers. Yeah, yeah. Even so in college, not much more than a, a typical teacher. Yeah, they get a three thousand dollar additional uh, payment for being the head football coach. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah. so they're not they're not concerned whether or not. I mean, they'll probably lose a little bit of revenue, right? You'll make you'll make some money on off of football and selling concessions and that kind of thing, but it's not much. Um, and then the the another thing that I wanted to talk to you guys about was um i thought maybe you'd want to talk about um was uh the the one thing that could turn the entire college athletics uh kind of system on its head is a student strike okay and northwestern university the football players they almost went on strike a few years ago. I think it was like 2015 or 2016. And I thought it was interesting because then I, when I wrote my piece about it, Northwestern was actually the highest paid. If you want to look at, you know, the highest paid football uh, players in the country, it would be Northwestern, right? Because they had the highest total cost of attendance. But just a couple of years before, they were thinking about going on strike. Okay. And this whole strike thing has been, um, you know, it's been talked about for a long time. In fact, I want to tie it back to Duke. Um, so you know who Jay Billis is, right? Sure we do. Yeah. Jay Billis played, played uh, for Duke and the national championship team in 1986. Well, they're at the final four and there's another guy who played for Duke in the seventies. His name is Dick uh, DiVenzio. And Dick DiVenzio, he wrote books on uh, basketball. Um, he said, you know, one that I recall is Take Only Easy Shots, <laughs> which is a great name for a basketball book. Um, but Dick DiVenzio, he, he was actually one of the leaders in this whole, you know, uh, pay for play kind of thing. And he, w- he actually used his own money and sent $100 checks to players um, at some point, just trying to make a point. 
Well, he um, talked to Jay Billis and I guess the rest of the team um, while they were um, at the Final Four. I think it was in San Antonio that year, but I think it's somewhere in Texas, maybe it was Dallas. And he said, hey, guys, what, what, what do you think about a strike? Going on strike and just, you know, not playing. And Jay Billis famously said, how about next year, Dick? You know, knowing that he was a senior. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, go ahead. Think about it next year. And then more recently, um, actually, there's a, there's a guy, uh, I don't know if you heard about. Um, his name is Nigel Hayes. He played basketball at, um, you heard, okay. So he, he's famous because he showed up at ESPN game day, I think in 2016, with a sign that said, Broke Badger. And he had his friend's Venmo account on the sign. And people, people basically Venmoed his friend's account, and the money actually went to the Boys and Girls Club of uh, Dane County. But um, Nigel Hayes, throughout that, um, that year in, in the NCAAs, they, he tried to organize a strike with uh, some of his friends uh, on the team. And I guess the way that they did it is they said, well, you know, it was all by text message, but they said, well, let's, uh, let's, who wants to go on strike? And if, if it's not unanimous, then we won't do it. Well, one guy, at least one guy said, no, I don't want to go on strike. And then that was the end of it. But I'm, I look at these stories and I just think there is going to be a strike, a player strike at one point or another. And I think um, the most recent story I read was about um, University of Michigan. One of their players, I just read it over uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, Duncan Robinson. Duncan, Duncan Robinson. Robinson at University of Michigan. That's exactly right. Yes. Duncan Robinson uh, suggested that they boycott the um, shoot around, right, at the, at the Final Four. Was it or was it? I don't know what exactly. game it was. That's, that's exactly he, right. Oh, that's, it's, it's an open he, media shoot around. That's, that's Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't even a game. And they, this, they couldn't organize it. And I think it's because, you know, I thought about this a lot. And I think it's because, um, you know, when you, when you grow up in sports, you know, the, the number one thing you're, you're taught is you, know, you need to be a team player. Right. And I think it's hard for these players to think of, think of this as kind of, you know, a situation just like Nigel Hayes had the problem, right? One guy decided, no, I don't want to strike. I want to play the game. And then everybody came on board and they said, okay, we're going to play the game. And I think that's what happened in Michigan too. I'm not sure exactly how that story, I can't remember how that story ended, but um, they didn't do it. Right. And that would have been easy, right. To, to boycott uh, one of those or to go on strike for, uh, a, a media event. <laughs> That's right. And, he he uh, said that he was able to rally his own team. He was able to rally his own team, but they tried to reach out to the other three teams as well. And because they couldn't get them to acquiesce, okay. that's what caused them to bail okay. on it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, Michigan could have just done it on their own, right? They could have just delayed the game for like a half an hour, 15 minutes or something like that. That's all it would take. And then everybody would just fold up because the NCAA and the NCAA actually, when uh, there was an article recently about their problems with, um, you know, not having enough insurance for the pandemic, and I think there are some people quoted as saying we were actually more worried about the players, you know, and the players doing something because of the NIL situation. So they forget they totally took their eye off the ball, right? 
even though I think that is a severe problem, is what the whether or not the players are going to show up. I think every coach and every athletic director worries that they're, they're going to be the ones that they're, it's going to be one of their teams that strikes first. But all it would take <laughs> to fix all these problems with the NCAA is for the players just to say, okay, we're not going to play today. And Jay Billis uh, actually has uh, given scenarios where at Duke, maybe they just play the game, um, not in Cameron, but in the practice facility, right? So do it without the cameras, do it without the spectators, do it, you know, basically with the same refs who showed up to, to, uh, to officiate the game, but they just do it next door. And if they were just to, to do that, then that would totally cripple the system. So anyway, I think that we're, we're getting close to that. It's going to happen, and it could happen because of this pandemic thing, right? Let's just say that they say, well, we're going to have football. We're going to do football, and you know, everyone has to show up. And I think there are going to be kids who don't show up if they do that because their parents are going to say it's not worth it, don't do it. You know, and then if uh, if the students realize that you know they could actually have something more severe happen to them than than just having than just being on a respirator <laughs> for a couple of days, and I, I say that in jest because being on a respirator is serious is pretty serious, right? But if uh, students realize that uh, there are going to be some potential other problems, and guess what? Who's going to cover your health care? Right? The NCAA right now only covers your health care for like. I don't know, 18 months or two years after you're, after you're done, and then you're on your own. So there are a lot of issues that have to be solved, and I don't know that they're going to be able to solve all these issues. Well, uh, Michael, you may be a regent, but you are speaking our language. So from your mouth to the ears of college athletes across this country, I, I hope that they tune in and listen because I think you got some pretty profound advice for them. Um, and I want to thank you, as Derek did, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk to us. It has been an absolute pleasure. So all the best to you and your family as we continue to endure this pandemic. Likewise. Thanks, guys. And uh, stay well and stay away from people. 